Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today I'll be teaching on Did God Design the Universe? This is a continuation in our apologetic series, and I think it dovetails nicely with our previous episode by David Flatt, where he asked the question, did the universe begin to exist? I think David did a great job summarizing that, unlike a thousand years ago, where most ancient thinkers thought that the universe was past eternal, we now understand, based on the standard model from about 1920 to today, that the universe is finite. It did have a starting point. That doesn't prove that God exists, of course, but it does make sense with the way that Christians and Jews have thought about creation for thousands of years. Today we're going to go a little bit deeper and ask this question, well, when we see an irreducibly complex universe, we see the fine-tuning that exists in the physical constants and things like that, does that point to design? I think you will get a lot out of this. It is very scientific, but I think there are some interesting questions and answers from a topic like this. So let's jump right in. All right, so good morning to everybody. And we're going to start with a little bit of, I wouldn't say an experiment, but maybe it's like an illustration. So kind of go with me here. This feels like something that Eric would do. Um, but here is our photo, okay? And I want you, as you're sitting there, if it's helpful to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. Most of you probably won't. But I at least want you to kind of put yourself in this place as I describe this story, okay? All right, so imagine that you're on a camping trip. It's midnight and you can't sleep. So you walk away from your campsite by yourself and you happen upon a large open field. You find a fence there and you take a seat. The temperature is just perfect. It's like 72 degrees and it is so quiet. There are no kids around, there are no cars. There's just the still soft sound of wind blowing by your ear and the occasional chirp of a cricket. In your hand, you've got a Yeti cup. Maybe it's filled with sweet tea. It's not too sweet, it's just sweet enough and some ice and you're completely relaxed and present in this moment. And so you gaze up at the night sky and it's bright and countless stars above you and you just take it all in. Okay, so do you see yourself there? Do you wish you were there right now? Probably. Um, so here's my question or questions. As you're looking up at that, I'd like to think that we've all been there before. Uh, what goes through your mind as you search the sky? So just kind of think for a second, like what's, what's going through your mind? What questions are you asking? And what do you want to know? Like what, what kind of hits your heart as you're staring out into that wonder? I guess another question is, do you feel small? Does anyone have any like things that kind of jump up at you when, when you're thinking about that? Like what are, what are sort of the questions? What's on your mind as you stare into space like that? I don't know that I ever come up with any questions. I don't, like I don't question how that could be or how it works or anything. I'm just kind of in awe slash impressed. You know, like I don't, I don't necessarily think of anything. I'm just staring and focused on it and kind of wow. Yeah, kind of in the moment and wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any questions? So when you're out by yourself, it's the night, it's quiet, you're looking up into the sky, you're staring at the stars, maybe appreciating like the order of all the galaxies. Well, I guess you can't see galaxies, constellations. Um, are there any questions you ask? You wonder how many planets are just in rotation? Yeah, for sure. 
Does anyone think about God? Does anyone ask those sort of questions? I think I always think, like, what, like why? What, like, why did he decide to create all this or to do all this? I yeah. guess kind of like Scott, I feel like, you know, my whole life, my faith has been, you know, grounded on the fact that he did create and he did put all this into motion, so I don't necessarily wonder who did. Um, but I do have questions of, like, you know, why did he do it? Like, was he bored? Or, like, you know, like, sort of. So questions about, you know, why did God do it and all those sort of things. But you, you've grown up knowing about God, so you're not asking, like, well, did he do it? You know, there's a scene in Lion King where they do this. Just kidding. Um, so just something to think about to kind of get us thinking along these things. And so obviously we are in this section on science, okay? And so we always sort of say this, and I feel like it seems condescending, so I'm not going to say it. But, like, I do accept that some people this is, like, exciting to them, some of it's not. Um, but I, I think one other argument I'll make for why we talk about these things is I think that we're at a place in our culture where uh, the majority of our culture, I think if you really press them on it, we consider a belief in God to be laughable, okay? Now, maybe in the United States it's not true. Maybe it's slightly more think it's okay to believe in God. Maybe slightly less believe that it's stupid to believe in God or it's unreasonable or irrational. If you look at Europe, they would actually, you know, in a poll would say that it is, in fact, majority would say it's unreasonable. Um, I think that there are a lot of people that maybe in a poll would say, I believe in God, but truly if you push them on it, they would not really have great reasons for it or great ration behind it. Um, And I'm afraid that this mindset with time is going to rub off on us. Just as our culture influences the way we think in a lot of other ways, I think this idea that a belief in God is unreasonable is, is rubbing off on us if it hasn't, you know, if it's not going to in the future already. Um, and I think then we're forced to ignore these objections scientifically. So if we hear a scientific objection to God or an existence of God or the need for God, I think we just have to kind of push that away, which is not really a good way to handle questions that you have or things that, that test your faith. And then we're, to believe in God, we have to fully believe in faith. And I think that ultimately a decision to follow God, to accept Christ, is a faith decision but it doesn't mean that it has to be unreasonable, okay? Um, now, what's interesting, too, though, about these scientific topics is I think that most atheists, uh, certainly ones that are, that are really maybe shallow in their atheism, but that's what they've accepted, they would assume that science, okay, that's sort of their religion, as it were, would have satisfactory answers in place for how our universe came to exist, okay? Um, so I think that they would just think that science has answers. So, well, we've got the Big Bang, we've got evolution, now that's the kind of answers that we need, okay? Um, but the truth is, is that these answers don't exist in a satisfactory way, and that atheists are relying on faith in science to the same degree that they criticize Christians of having faith in God, okay? So we call that the faith of an atheist. There is a certain amount of faith, meaning you can't test it, you can't prove it, you can't observe it, that an atheist would have to buy into to accept that the universe created itself, let's say. Okay, so I think it's really important. I think it's one of the most important initial conversations, certainly with someone that's a scientific person, okay, in terms of, well, how do you think all this came to be? And if you're staring out at a night sky, I think that is a natural question that you would ask. Obviously, if you're, you know, grown up with a concept of God, you're going to think that God created it. But if you hadn't, or if you grew up with a concept where there is no God, you're going to ask different questions when you stare off under the sky. So I want to really quickly summarize what David talked about last week. I think most of you are here, but for those of you who weren't, um, he asked this question of, did the universe begin to exist? 
And so we're basing a lot of this series on this verse from 1 Peter, where it says that always be prepared to make a defense, which is in Greek apologia, or apologetic, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so we need to be prepared to defend our faith, okay? It doesn't need to be a thing where we just say, hey man, I just believe it. It's what works for me. It needs to be something that we can back up uh, while we believe in it and hopefully convince others to believe it too. Uh, so this is William Lane Craig, a doctor with two PhDs um, and kind of a, a foremost, I guess, Christian thinker in issues like these. He's written two books that you can pick up if you like that sort of thing. And then he has this argument that David summarized last week. And so it is a logically valid argument. I know a lot of us are not philosophy majors. So myself, this is like my first experience with these sort of things. But the idea is, is that you have three different points and if each one you can prove, then the conclusion is true. So the first would be that whatever begins to exist has a cause. We talked about that. We felt confident that we proved that, okay? Second thing is the universe began to exist. For thousands of years, we didn't believe that. Okay, Plato, Aristotle, they didn't believe that. They thought the universe was eternal. It had been there forever. Um, but since 1920 or so, we believe that the universe began to exist. So this is science kind of informing something that Christians have believed for thousands of years. If those two things are true, then the universe has a cause, okay? Now, if, if you're not following this, this may not mean a whole lot to you, but that's a big deal, okay? If the best we can get from science and philosophy would suggest to us that the universe has a cause, it begs the question, well, what is that cause of the universe, okay? We would say that it would be God, okay? He caused the universe. He's the personal creator of the universe, and he's what we call the uncaused first cause, okay? And so God is eternal and uncaused. And so David did a much better job than I'm going to be able to do in these 30 seconds of explaining this. Um, but God has been around forever. And so God is one that could bring our universe into existence at some point in time. Okay. All right. So this was the conclusion. If you want to kind of get what we talked about last week, the Kalam cosmological argument. And don't get caught up on that name. I know it's kind of crazy sounding. Um, but it's just an argument that gives us powerful grounds for believing in the existence of a beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, changeless, immaterial, enormously powerful personal creator of the universe. Okay, so I say all that, and I know for a lot of people it's like, well, that's what I believe already, so like, why do we need to go through all this gymnastics to get to that point? Well, I, I think because it, it helps sort of support the things that we believe to be true. And so it's fair to say that most of us have grown up in a church where we've been told this our whole lives, but we don't necessarily have a strong foundation as to why we believe that. So I talk about our home as a spiritual home being, honestly, a lot of our brick has been laid by other people. And sometimes you have to go and inspect that because you may have termites, okay? Um, and it could be, before you know it, that that house falls apart, okay, if you don't go back and inspect the foundations. So this is a foundational concept, especially in the face of a culture that is increasingly saying that God does not exist, that there's no need for a God, in our universe and so on and so forth. But in fact, science would say that there is a beginning point to the universe. Today, we will look at a different question, which is, did God design the universe? All right, so this idea of intelligent design, we've all heard that, right? I think, unfortunately, intelligent design gets really grouped in with young earth creationism, which I'm not necessarily against. It's not my personal philosophy, let's say. Um, but what we're talking about today is not intelligent design in the sense that there are like irreducibly cons, uh, complex biological systems or something like that. We're just talking about the universe itself. Does the complexity of it, does the fine tuning of it point to design? Okay. And we'll talk about some kind of reasonings behind that. Um, 
So kind of historically, I want to look at a couple ancient thinkers and what they thought in terms of uh, astronomy and the universe and design and things like that. This is Plato, good-looking guy. Um, and his goal, and so if you know anything about Plato, he had this academy, and it's pretty cool because his academy, I think it was around for like a thousand years, which we think about like our institutions, like Harvard, I think has been around for like 380 years. And we think of Harvard like, oh, that's a big deal. I don't know how long Oxford has been around. Probably that long or close to it. But a thousand years, he had a school that, that started and that, that survived. So the academy, it was called. And his goal was to search truth by means of rational inquiry. Okay. So he is really one of the probably top five most influential thinkers uh, of antiquity, okay? Um, he was also struck with the order of the cosmos or of the universe. And in fact, he spent extensive time and thought on astronomy as a topic, okay? I don't. I don't think about astronomy a lot. It's, it's been since probably where in space is Carmen Sandiego as a fourth grader that I've really focused on the universe and planets. I had a patient the other day, I always asked them, kind of, you know, what's, what's your thing? And this kid's was, was space, and it was like planets. So I was like, well, that's cool. I was like, and so I always bring up where in space is Carmen Sandiego, and no one knows what that is, uh, especially not kids. I was like, what's your favorite planet? She's like, well, probably Pluto. And I wanted to say, well, that's not actually a planet anymore, but I didn't, so I, I, I bit my tongue there. Uh, and then I started asking her the names of moons, and she knew them. She was good, but she doesn't know that Pluto is not a planet. So, um, so maybe, maybe somebody else can tell her that. But anyway, so astronomy is not something I think we think about. And I might go ahead and say that we don't think about astronomy so much because we don't, like in that initial example, we don't go and like stare at the space anymore, okay? We have TVs and we have computers in our pockets. And I think we stare at those and wonder at those things more than we wonder at the, the sky and the stars and things like that. But either way, Plato thought that astronomy, and it's up on the board there, uh, was the science that would awaken man to his divine destiny. Okay, those are pretty bold words, right? And he thought that two things led men to believe in God. He said that two things believe, uh, led men to believe in God, the existence of the soul, okay? And then also the order of the motion of the stars and of all the things under the dominion of the mind which ordered the universe. So basically, two things led to belief in God, soul, a conscience, something inside of ourselves that we all accept, and then basically astronomy, okay? So here's a quote from him. This is from 387 BC. And if you've ever seen this, this is a Raphael fresco that's in, I think the Vatican. I think that's where that's at. Uh, if I'm wrong, Peter's giving me a confirmational head shake, okay? Um, it's super, super famous fresco, okay? So it's like one of those things like when you're in Italy and you walk upon these things, you're like, oh, like I've seen this, like I've studied this. Um, but anyway, this is uh, Plato's Academy, okay? Um, and he said this, he says, there must be a best soul who is the maker, capital M, and father of all, the king who ordered the primordial chaos into the rational cosmos that we observe today. So just keep in mind, Plato did not have a copy of the Old Testament, okay? He didn't have a Bible, okay? These are things that he concluded based on his rational inquiry. All right, so Aristotle is the guy that followed Plato. He was a student of Plato, and he had a book called On Philosophy. Has anyone read any Aristotle? Probably no hands raised. Okay. You have? Well, raise it proud. You're the only one. Raise that Starbucks cup. Um, so Scott has read On Philosophy. Was it good? No. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> Shut up, Scott. Shut up. Um, yeah, it's probably a little bit. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was a little tough. 
I was hanging out with Anna's brother. It's been a few months or whatever that was, but he was like reading all of Aristotle's stuff. So he's like a, you know, a PhD candidate uh, in, in literature and things. So he loves that kind of stuff. But anyway, he imagines this kind of scenario. Okay, so imagine there's a group of people that are living underground. They've never been outside. Okay, so we've got our cave people, right? And then you take them outside and you ask them what they see and then what they think about it. Okay, can you imagine that? So you're 30 years old, you've never been outside, and then you go outside and you look around, what would you conclude, okay? This is what he says. Uh, actually, no, this is what he says. Uh, they would see the earth, the seas, the sky, the clouds and the wind, things they had never seen, the sun, moon, and stars, their courses fixed and changeless throughout eternity. When they should behold all these things, most certainly they would have judged both that there exist gods and that all these marvelous works are the handiwork of the gods. Okay, so he's not believing in, you know, Yahweh God, but he would conclude based on that, and those people would conclude that there is a God. All right, now we've heard of this guy, Paul, all right? It's from 56 AD, and this is from Romans. And this is before science would have suggested any of these things to be this case, but ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Okay? And so we've got three ancient thinkers, and they're all sort of in you know, agreement that just looking at nature, looking at space, points to the need for a God, okay? And these are men that are wholly ignorant of the Bible, certainly Plato and Aristotle, um, and they're concluding based on the design that's present in the universe, okay, design, order, that God must exist. So what we're finding is that today, astronomers are kind of coming back around to this same concept, okay? All right, so we're going to talk in a little bit about fine-tuning. What I first want to talk about is this idea of the rebirth of design, so design or order and that being an answer for there being a God was something that thousands of years ago, thinkers, that was their conclusion. We're kind of coming back around to that. And so we used to think that the early universe, given enough time and some luck, would produce life forms like ourselves. And so even Aristotle and Plato, they believed in an eternal universe. And so basically the old adage is if you have a monkey behind a typewriter, eventually it'll produce Hamlet or Shakespeare or whatever, right? Well, we don't have enough time for a monkey to produce Hamlet if the universe is not eternal, okay? So we can't really rest on those concepts of infinity anymore. Uh, we now realize this, is that for our universe to permit the existence of intelligent life anywhere at all in the cosmos, there needs to be a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions present in the Big Bang itself, okay? That's, that's a mouthful, I realize, uh, but we're going to get into that and unpack that. Um, and there's a quote here that I like. This is Fred Hoyle, and uh, he actually coined the term Big Bang sort of a derogatory term for this guy, but it stuck. But uh, he says that a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. So we are going to talk about physics today. I took uh, two classes in college on physics and didn't like them. I didn't like physics. Didn't do a lot for me. I liked it more than chemistry. I really didn't like chemistry, but anyway. Uh, but we are going to talk a little bit about that kind of on the surface. I first want to look at this idea of fine-tuning. You may have heard this before. You may not have. Um, I think it's important that we sort of understand it because in the science world it's a really common thing. Uh, what fine-tuning is, it's just the delicate balance of initial conditions of the universe that is necessary for life, okay? And I want to make a distinction here is that fine-tuning, I think sometimes I've heard Christians, you know, talking about science, they sort of use it as like a proof for God. Fine-tuning is not a proof for God. It's a neutral term, okay? It doesn't say anything about how fine-tuning is best explained. It's just a thing, okay? It's the delicate balance of initial conditions 
uh, on which our universe uh, allows for life, okay? And so basically it's an idea that there are these values that are in place, and there's several we'll look at, um, that if they were changed a little bit, our universe would go from being life permitting to being life prohibiting, okay? Some of this is theoretical, okay? But what we'll find is that they are fine-tuned to an extremely, extremely narrow degree, okay? All right, so let's look a little bit at this. I think I'll help make a little bit more sense of what I mean by fine-tuning. And there are two types of fine-tuning, tuning, rather. There are constants of nature, all right? So we remember from physics or chemistry that there would be constants, right? Does anyone remember that? All right, I'm gonna write an equation on the board, and I'm hopeful that no one just like gets up and leaves the classroom, but we'll see. All right. Okay, does anyone remember that? Does anyone know what that is? You don't have to know what that is. Isn't that like a nightmare? I still ha actually had this dream the other night that I was in a test and I opened it up and it was stuff like this and I was like, I have no idea what this is. I used to have that, that dream all the time in college. Um, so I don't know what that means, but. I need a shrink. Do you remember this, Eric? Okay. All right, so this is <laughs> Newton's law of universal gravitation, okay? And we're not gonna spend a lot of time on it, but what I'll basically show you is, we'll draw a big mass, and we'll draw a small mass, okay? So this is M1 and M2. The distance between their midpoints would give us this, and then we would square it, and that would give us a force. Okay, so this is about gravity. If this is you and this is Earth, this is going to pull you towards it, okay? And there's a certain constant that informs what that number is going to be, what that force is going to be, okay? And that constant does not change, but that constant is also arbitrary, okay? Um, and so that is an example of fine-tuning, okay? Other examples of constants, okay, would be like electromagnetic force, subatomic weak force. These are unchanging entities. When you're in a physics class, you have them written on a note card because it's a weird number. It's like 1.67 times 10 to the sixth power. So you're like, okay. <laughs> and at the time, you just accept them for what they are. They're just truths, but they're unchanging, okay? Um, they're not determined by the laws of nature. So this concept and even this doesn't necessarily create this. It's just the way that it is in our world and we observe these things. And so we, we have to plug it into this equation to help it make sense. Um, but there could be universes, okay, theoretically, that could have different constants, okay? So you could have the same law of nature that rules gravity, but that G, that constant, it could be different, right, theoretically? There was a game, did anyone ever play the game that was called Gorillas? It was like a Q-basic game on computers. I was probably like in third grade. Anybody? I was hoping somebody had. All right, so it was these two gorillas, and they were standing on all these little buildings, sort of like a King Kong motif, I guess, and they were throwing bananas at each other. The bananas were explosive. Does anyone remember that? Okay. All right. And so you would get to select uh, your angle and your velocity. I played it last night. You can find this stuff. So when I was supposed to be working on this, I was playing gorillas. Um, and so it's like, a, you know, it's a, you, know you, you try it, and it's, oh, it goes way over his head. So then you, you kind of change the angle, change the velocity. You can also change the gravity. Okay. So you could change it from, what, 9.8 blah, 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 um, to like whatever. So of course we would play it and be like, let's do it at this like crazy gravity. And you throw it and it would just go, you know, like whiz or, or if you had it like really low, it'd go very slow, you know. Um, and so it's true that in a universe, it could be like gorillas where the gravity is just totally different. We know the gravity on the moon is different, okay? And certainly these constants could be different. 
And so if that constant was different than what it is on Earth and what we can observe, the universe would look very different. And it's also true that changing that could make that universe life prohibiting. Life wouldn't be able to exist, okay? But of course, it is what it is. We observe what we observe. And because of that, we're alive, right? All right, so the second thing, these are examples of fine tuning, two types. There are arbitrary physical quantities. These are the initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate, okay? So this is also not determined by this, okay? Um, you know, the fact that this mass exists is not determined by this law of nature, okay? It's just the way it is. Um, and so here's an example. There's something called thermodynamic disorder. I know this is exciting. Um, it's called entropy. Does anyone remember that? Okay, just disorder. And in the early universe that the Big Bang would have acted on, there was a certain amount of entropy present, okay? And so it's an initial condition that's given in the Big Bang. Um, and then the laws of nature take over and then they get us to where we are now 13 billion years later, if you believe that. All right, if those initial conditions had been different, let's say there was slightly less entropy, where we would be today would be completely different. Okay, we're talking about take 13 billion years and then you take something you know, that far away and then you change something just a little bit, what follows from that is gonna be completely different. Maybe you add some more entropy, gonna be completely different. And the point is, is, if you did that, we may not be here. There may not be any life. The universe may have already frozen out. It may have never come to be. Okay, does that start to make sense what we're talking about? All right, here's the point. Is these constants and quantities must fall into an extraordinary, extraordinarily narrow range of values for the universe to be life permitting. That's what I want to prove, and that's going to be the takeaway point today. You don't need to know this, okay, thankfully. This will not be on the test. Um, but I do want you to get kind of what it means for our universe to be fine-tuned, okay? All right, so here are numbers for perspective, and this is these two first numbers, you don't need to know. This has nothing to do with fine-tuning. This is just to get us thinking along the lines of big numbers, okay? The biggest number I usually think about is probably like a million or something, okay? I don't go into like bigger numbers than that. It gets kind of hard. So here are some crazy numbers. These are the number of seconds in the history of the universe. It would be 10 to the 17th power seconds. Okay, that's a huge number, right? Wouldn't you like to have to write that number out? So I added all the zeros, so it's one with 17 zeros, okay? Another one, just again, a number for perspective. This is the number of subatomic particles in the entire known universe. How do they know that? I have no idea. But someone smart has come up with that. They felt strongly enough in it that they could put it up there. It's a nice round number too, that's always interesting. But anyway, it's 10 to the 80th power. Okay, so it's one with 80 zeros, right? It's crazy. So now let's look though at some examples of fine tuning. Now, I don't want you to get lost in this. What this means is this is gonna be a number that represents the degree to which something is fine tuned. So if you changed it even one part in what this number is gonna be, it would throw everything out of whack, okay? I hope that makes sense. We're gonna first look at the subatomic weak force this is what holds atoms together. And the number here is 10 to the 100th power. So one and 100 zeros. So we just looked at those numbers that seemed crazy. This one's even bigger. And so if you altered this value by even one part in that, the atoms would no longer hold together and everything would blow apart. Okay, isn't that crazy? All right, let's look at another one. This is the cosmological constant. This is what drives accelerations of the, uh, of the universe's expansion. There's a big part of the Big Bang, so that, you know, things have been expanding for 13 billion years. There's a constant that controls that, let's say. And then a change, so this one's 10 to the 100, 120th power. Um, if that had changed even one part, 
uh, it would have rendered the universe as life prohibiting. Okay? I'm going to say this right now again. This doesn't mean that God exists. This is not a religious argument. These are scientific arguments, okay? These are things that scientists would agree to, okay? They wouldn't conclude the same as me, perhaps, but they would say, yeah, this is true. Like, it's a really tight and finely tuned thing, okay? Physics is weird, right? Okay, the last one, which is just kind of insane, is what's known as a low entropy state, and we talked about it earlier, about the amount of disorder that's present in the universe, and this is something that Roger Penrose from Oxford came up with, and this is the odds uh, that the low entropy state existed by chance is 1 to the 10 raised to the 123rd power, okay? So it's like one with like crazy zeros after it, right? Almost had to use two slides. Um, and so the fine tuning here is just beyond comprehension. But this is something that is necessary to explain how our universe came to be and came to allow for life, okay? You don't need to know this. Again, it's not on the test, but I want to, you to appreciate kind of what we're talking about. It's not a thing where it's like, yeah, I mean, it's like one in a thousand that something would happen. It's like one in a million, or we'll talk about here in a little bit with the, with the lottery. It's not like one in several billion. It's like one in <laughs> Google, 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 or what. You know what I mean, like I don't even have like a comprehension for what these numbers mean, right? Okay. And here's kind of a quote to bring this home. If the value of even one of these constants or quantities were to be altered by a hair's breadth, the delicate balance required for the existence of life would be upset and the universe would be life prohibiting instead. Okay, so that's what's meant by fine tuning. All right, so let's look at this. This is going to be sort of our argument here for design. And here's what we accept that there is cosmic fine tuning. Scientists would agree on that. Okay. The conclusion is going to be different for different people, okay? So we've got to come up with, well, what, what caused this fine-tuning, or why is it like it is, okay? And so here's our logically valid argument. It's our three-step argument. Um, and the first part of this is the fine-tuning of the universe is due either to physical necessity, chance, or design. We'll look at each three of those. Um, and then we'll try and prove then that it is not due to physical necessity or chance. And if we can do that, it's due to design. So let's look at this first part, that fine-tuning of the universe is due to either uh, physical necessity, chance, or design. Those are our three options. There doesn't really exist a fourth option, and if one were able to be put forth, then we could look at that, but there is no popular fourth alternative. So let's examine these in turn as to why there's fine-tuning in the universe. All right, so let's first look at physical necessity. And I'll kind of make this one short. Um, this alternative would say that the universe has to be life-permitting. That that's just the way it is. It was a physical necessity. There was no other way, basically, that it could have happened. Okay. Uh, the problem with this is it's a pretty radical view from a scientific standpoint. Um, we talked about the constants. We talked about the, uh, the amounts uh, of things that existed. Those are just arbitrary values, and why couldn't they be different? So theoretically, like, why couldn't that you know, gravitational constant be different? Shouldn't it be able to, theoretically? Um, Nothing seems to make these things necessary in and of themselves. Um, and so if you're a proponent of this, of course, you have to pick something that's other than design if you don't want to pick that and what that means. Uh, but you're taking a radical line that requires some proof, and there really is none. Okay, So this is not necessarily a popular view, but it is one of the views that exists. Okay, All right, so we're going to now look at that was physical necessity, basically saying, like, this is just the way that it had to be. Okay. But there's really no proof for that, and there's no real reason why it would have to be that way. And then we'll look at chance, okay? I think this would be the more popular alternative, 
And in this alternative, it's just an accident that all the constants and quantities fell into the life permitting range. We lucked out, basically. And I think this would be kind of the popular way of believing in where we are and why we are here. Is that, I mean, it just kind of happened. It's sort of like that idea, I think, that's still in the minds of, of most people is that it's like a monkey on a typewriter. It's like, well, it just kind of happened. I mean, it's, it's, it's random. There's so many billions of years here and things like that. I think we still have this idea sort of infinity, even though we don't really have it. There are theories that have kind of been devised to allow for this, like multiple universes and bubble universes, and basically this idea that there are an infinite number of universes, and in one of those universes, it worked out. There's a thing called M-theory or superstring theory. There's Hawking's The Theory of Everything. You may have seen that movie. It's basically this idea that there's something there. We don't know what it is yet, but it helps explain how all this is possible. But it's ultimately, it's a thing of chance. It's randomness, okay? Something came out of nothing for no reason. It will return to nothing again, and that it's based on chance, okay? To me, that's not really a satisfactory answer, but that is kind of where we're at. All right, so let's use an illustration to sort of bring that home. Uh, so I want you to be honest. Who in here has purchased a Powerball ticket? Who has not purchased a Powerball ticket? I want you to notice that Eric Gentry, I think reluctantly raised his hand. I think Eric has purchased a Powerball ticket, but I won't, I won't push you on it. He's purchased other things. Well, we won't ask him. It's okay. We won't bring that up. We will bring it up, actually, in the next elders meeting. I'm not an elder. Um, all right, so I have... I did? Oh, I did threaten you. That's right. Via text. So it was a soft threat. Um, it was a joke. Um, so I purchased a Powerball ticket, and I knew it was stupid, and I just, whatever. It was like a crazy high amount, and I purchased one. It turns out I didn't win. Um, but, oh, oh, man. Does anyone know what the, uh, if you saw that, don't say it. Does anyone know what the odds of winning the Powerball are currently? It's one in something. Any guess? Just throw something out there. Nobody? 100 million. 900 billion, wow, there aren't that many people on Earth. Um, people buy multiple tickets, yeah, yeah, I know. It is, it is a crazy number anyway. It's one in 292 mil million. I taught this five years ago, and the odds back then were one in like 70, 172 million. So I guess there are more dumb people playing the lottery now, and the odds have gotten worse. Um, but the reason we play it, why do we play it? Because someone's got to win, right? Someone's going to win that money, okay? Someone has to. Um, and you know that e everyone's chances are equally improbable. Okay, one in 292 million, but somebody's got to win, right? Okay, so let's imagine this. When we look at our universe and we talk about the chance that it came from nothing, the odds are not one in 292 million, okay? They're, they are much greater than that. We looked at that. It's like Google, 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 billions, billions, trillions, whatever, okay? And so let's think of it like this. So if someone wins the Powerball, we think, man, that is amazing. That is a great story. I mean, they're just lucky. They got lucky. What if our universe coming about by chance is sort of like someone winning the Powerball five times in a row? All right? So if someone wins the Powerball even twice in a row, but let's say five times in a row, would we think that they were just lucky? What would you think had happened if that had happened? It was rigged. Yeah. It was set up. It was fabricated. Something's not right. Okay? It would be all over the news. Like, how did this person win even twice, okay, but five times? And the odds are even beyond that. And so when we see a universe that is so tightly designed or put together that there's just no way for chance to logically explain it, we have to come to the same conclusion. Something's rigged. As, as the guy said, it's been monkeyed with, okay? It's just not reasonable to believe anything different.
All right, so let's look at design. We're going to quickly go through. Um, okay, so we looked at this. The functioning of the universe is due either either to necessity, just had to be that way, chance, we got lucky, or design. Okay. This is kind of the, maybe the the prevailing uh, one of the prevailing arguments against design. It would be found in Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, which has sold three million copies. That's a lot. Okay, that's a ton of of copies. We saw Tim Keller on Thursday. And I was like, man, everybody's read Tim Keller, but I think he's not even sold three million total. I think he's still like around like a million or something, which you can fact check me on that. But um, three million of this one book, okay? And so if you don't know Dawkins, he's probably the best known atheist presently, okay? He was one of the four, uh, uh, what's called the new atheists, okay? Uh, one has since passed, but he's probably the best known. Um, and he has a problem with this idea of a, cos a cosmic designer, okay? And so he has this argument string that I'm going to read for you. And so you can kind of see, like, what is the best argument against design or what is the most popular argument, let's say. Three million people have read this or at least have bought the book. And he says this. This is a central argument in this book. One of the greatest challenges to the human intellect has been to explain how the complex and probable appearance of design in the universe arises, Okay. The natural temptation is to attribute the appearance of design to actual design itself. The temptation is a false one because the designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem of who designed the designer. We'll look at that point in a second. The most ingenious and powerful explanation is Darwinian evolution by natural selection. We don't have an equivalent explanation for physics, which is like the fine tuning we we're talking about. We should not give up the hope though for a better explanation arising in physics something as powerful as Darwinism is for biology. And then this is his conclusion, which we've been looking at these logically you know, sound arguments and how you prove one thing and then the next follows and then you have a conclusion. It makes sense and it's tight. This is his conclusion from those points, is that therefore God almost certainly does not exist. All right, so the real quick thing I will say about this is that that conclusion doesn't follow. It's not logically valid. Um, I would say it's plainly invalid based on these arguments. And this is the most popular argument against design in our universe, okay? Um, which is crazy. But maybe this is the best that there is out there, okay? And if you want to believe something, I guess you might believe it. Uh, so step five, we look at that. We don't have an equivalent explanation for physics. That's the, the fine-tuning that we talked about all morning, okay? They're still looking for this theory of everything that ties all these things together. Step six here, where it says, we should not give up hope of a better explanation arising in physics something as powerful as Darwinism is for biology. To me, that's a faith statement. That's the faith of an atheist. This is, I just hope that someday, if we try hard enough, we'll, we'll come up with an answer, which is kind of silly. And then step three raises a point that we're going to go into just a little bit, is this question of who designed the designer. Okay, so let's look at that really quickly um, and give a couple examples. And I would say that you don't need to explain the explanation. Okay, this isn't true in science. This is not true in, in life. So we look at archaeologists. If they discover an arrowhead or a pottery shard, what is their conclusion? Well, I don't know how they got there. <laughs> no, their conclusion is, well, there was a civilization. We don't know about them. I've never observed them. But certainly, this is a designed item. It had to have been made by an intelligent life form. And that's what they would attribute. You wouldn't be asking an archaeologist, well, explain to me who they were and where they came from and what hair color they had. I mean, you know, you'd say, obviously, this has been designed. Another way of saying it is if you were walking down a path and you ran into like a Lego castle, okay, it's been put together, your, your conclusion of that would not be, well, how'd that get there? 
like, I guess it just popped into existence. Well, no, you would think, well, maybe some kids are out here playing and they left this Lego castle here and that's how it got here. That's a perfectly reasonable explanation, even though you couldn't explain who had left it there, where they got in the Legos, and so on and so forth. Um, another one would be when you look at astronauts. Okay, so if astronauts, they're up on the moon and they travel a little bit further where they've never gone before and they find some sort of complex machinery, they wouldn't know who had put it there. Okay, it's like, did you put it here? I didn't put it here. Well, who put it here? I don't know. Maybe it was aliens. Maybe it was another you know, human race that lives somewhere else. Maybe it's been here for millennia. We don't know. But they wouldn't conclude that it was just there by chance or that what well, had to be here. It's a physical necessity that this machinery would be on the moon. It's just the way it had to be. They would, of course, conclude that it was designed by someone that was intelligent, correct? Um, and so the same should be true of this. All right, and then we'll, we'll answer this too. Um, it's this idea that he talks of God as being really complex. And so he's saying that God is more complex than what he's designed. This is maybe more of a philosophical argument. It may not make as much sense to you, but what William Lane Craig argues is that God is actually a simple entity. Now, God is magnificent. God is, we've been talking about attributes of God. We did that for five weeks. But in terms of it being a divine mind, that's actually simpler than the complexity of the universe in terms of parts and things like that. Um, and even if God is complex or more complex than what he designs, uh, complexity or simplicity is not the best argument uh, for the truth of theories, okay? All right, so lastly, um, there's an atheist called Quentin Smith who works with William Lane Craig, and they argue back and forth, and they collaborate on things. He said of Stephen Hawking's argument against God that he had, he had done, he called it the worst atheistic argument in the history of Western thought. Uh, what William Lane Craig kind of jokes is that the God delusion by Dawkins deserves to take over this throne. Okay, so here's our argument. We have the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. I like to think we've proved or shown that it does not, it's not due, rather, to physical necessity or chance, and therefore it is due to design, okay? It's our best answer, I think. I think objectively we would say it's our best answer, and what that means is a whole different discussion. So I want to go back really quickly, and we'll wrap up with that initial thing that we did where we're talking about looking out into the sky and what we thought and how we felt. Do we feel small? What did we say? What questions do we ask? And so on and so forth. This is what King David from Psalms 8 thought when he stared on, uh, off into the night sky. Okay? I don't know that he was holding a Yeti cup with sweet tea. It's possible. Okay? Um, but he stared off into the sky nonetheless. And he said this, Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set the glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, uh, human beings that you care for them? And I want to wrap with a quote. This is actually something that David wrote. Um, I'm going to wrap with this, and then we'll be done. We'll pray real quick, and we'll dismiss. Um, but I think this kind of brings all this home. Um, again, hopefully you got something out of this. I know this is different, um, but if this is something that comes up in conversations, you don't just have to simply say, well, that's just what I believe, okay? As if it's like some sort of silly thing to believe in God. All right, so we now have more scientific evidence than at any other point in human history to believe what King David wrote centuries ago as he gazed in on wonder into the Middle Eastern sky. Our universe is not an accident. You're not here by mistake. Our world is the work of a brilliant designer who not only fine-tuned the gravitational constant, but has always been in the constant pursuit of your heart. The God who put the stars in the sky wants you to know him forever. 
He wants a relationship with you so badly that even though he is holy, powerful, and just, he saw your sin and sent his son to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you deserve to die, and to conquer the enemy that you couldn't, so that all who trust in Christ will be reconciled to God forever. This story, the gospel, is our story. It will save us, and it is worthy of telling it to the ends of the earth. From the first moment of creation to the great day of hope and celebration, when we will finally see his face, and every tear will be dried from every eye, the universe and this existence is not an accident. It is designed. Oh, come, come Lord Jesus. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for um, everything, God, for this existence, for our opportunity to come to Highland to learn more about you and to worship you, God. Um, God, we are thankful for this, uh, this universe and the study of it, God, and uh, for the wonder that comes about when we look into these questions more deeply. Um, God, I'd ask that we would challenge ourselves to look into things that might scare us, uh, that we might have fear uh, that would take away from our faith. But uh, in fact, God, when we look into these things, it only strengthens our faith. And I got also hope that we would feel emboldened to share these things and to have these difficult discussions and these sometimes painful discussions with people uh, that don't believe you, God, and that we would seek to share you with people who, who desperately need you. Um, God, be with us throughout this week, God, and we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thank you to Kyle for doing a great job. We have one week left of our apologetics series, and David Flatt will be back with us to talk about historical evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. So I think that along these same lines of sort of science and what culture would think, an increasing number of Christians believe that Jesus didn't actually resurrect, that it was a figurative thing and it represents maybe redemption or um, you know, beating death out in the end and things like that. But we would believe that, in fact, Jesus, who came to earth to live, truly resurrected from the dead. And I think that is central to a true Christian belief. That is a, a primary doctrine of Christianity and something that we need to champion and, of course, understand better. And the good news is, is there is great historical evidence to believe such a thing. So David will be teaching on that next week. I hope you got something out of this week's lesson. Um, if you're an atheist listening to this and you felt like I wasn't sensitive enough or that maybe I ignored some things that are important to your side of the argument, I would love to discuss those. I don't mean to be uh, insensitive or inflammatory. Um, and so I'd love to have those conversations and I'd love to learn more about the way that you think and have those conversations together. I think that's the goal of all this is that we all come to uh, a conclusion that is, that is reasonable and that is true. If we believe that there exists truth, we should be able to get to that point. Of course, I think that that truth lays in God being at the center of the creation of our universe and of us and for having a redemptive plan for humanity through the death and the resurrection of his son. And that is what this apologetics series is about. So I hope you're having a good week. I hope the rest of this week is a real blessing to you. We will see you next time on the Holland Bridge Builders podcast. Thanks.